Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. If you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, we'll discuss the disruptions in the global supply chain, uh, how we should think about paternity leave. But first, I want to go to my TV screen, or at least the particular TV screen at my house that is streaming Netflix, where the hubbub is about the new stand-up special from the comedian Dave Chappelle. And... I've watched the special, and it's not Dave Chappelle's best work, but it's still pretty funny because Dave Chappelle is a pretty funny guy. I thought he was a pretty funny guy dating back to The Chappelle Show and even the movies he did prior to that. Um, The Chappelle Show, we should all remember, is incredibly transgressive uh, and was celebrated at the time for its transgressiveness. But Chappelle has been under fire in a way for the last couple of stand-up specials he's done, but this one in particular for jokes that he makes about the trans community. So we should note at the beginning, Dave Chappelle has been paid something around $60 million for these specials. So no small chunk of change, probably the most any comedian has ever made just for something like this. And what is interesting in the fallout from this is how Netflix is standing by him. So you have the uh, the CEO and the creative director of Netflix standing up and saying that, you know, Dave Chappelle's a comedian. He's going to make jokes. And they're basically have said that they're not going to cave to the people who are calling for them to either pull the special, apologize, cave, cancel Dave Chappelle. Uh, They even fired an employee who leaked internal data, an employee who's a trans activist who leaked internal data, which, of course, is the the right thing to do. Um, All of this is an example of an institution, in my opinion, doing what it should when you get these mobs of people coming after you, which is – Act like you should, given your role in that institution, and stand up and say, no, we're not going to do that. Sam, do you think this is possibly some kind of a watershed moment where we've got an example of an institution certainly normally given to a lot of uh, lefty thinking in the programming that they create, but nonetheless standing up to the mob here and saying, no, we're not going to apologize for comedy especially? Or is this just because Netflix has so much money invested in Dave Chappelle that they would be crazy to cave to the mob on it. Is it? Can we believe it's possibly a principled stand, or is it just purely a financial, self-interest motivated decision? In most such things, Eric, it's probably a combination of both. There are probably people inside the company who, as a matter of principle, are saying, we're tired of seeing lots and lots of companies, businesses, individuals, entire governments cave to this type of mob pressure and there's also others probably saying look we've invested millions of dollars in this program we're not going to blow it away simply because uh, a particular group of people uh, have are outraged by different things that he says so it's probably a combination of both Uh, i do think though that more generally i don't know what your sense or dan's sense is but my sense is that across the United States, but also in other countries as well. Enough, a lot of people are saying enough is enough. That, uh, so I, I think the great example to my mind is um, J.K. Rowling, right? The author of um, all those Harry Potter, yeah. that lots of children, right, have enjoyed and have been nourished by for a number of years, saying that, I'm sorry, but a woman is a woman, and that's a biological, there's a biological dimension to that, and that doesn't change, and that's sort of a bottom line for these things. I'm not 
making aspersions about any particular group out there that has a different view, but this is my position and I'm not going to be changing. And she's someone who didn't buckle. Uh, now, partly I suspect that's because there's still going to be lots and lots of people who read her novels no matter what she says about any sorts of things. But I, I do sense that there is a significant backlash growing against this, whether it's in schools, whether it's in businesses who are tired of placating different groups who are outraged by whatever it is they're outraged by, uh, and also uh, people just saying uh, this is having some significant implications for free speech and that's not really how this country should be operating. So I'm not sure it's a, it's a watershed in itself, but I do think it's reflective of a more general pushback and frustration and just tired of this mentality that is gathering across many countries uh, throughout the West and the world when it comes to this type of problem. Yeah, in, in a way, J.K. Rowling is like the, the cheese stands alone here. Like J.K. Rowling is kind of a separately out there, has been tremendously successful, has enough money to not really care about anyone, what they have to say about her. And I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to rip every issue of the Harry Potter books out of existence. You know, I don't I don't think they're going to actually accomplish that. And it's, it's interesting, they're saying to reference J.K. Rowling, because part of what has engendered controversy from Dave Chappelle's routine is basically saying that he identifies with J.K. Rowling in this comedy special and that he identifies himself as a turf, a trans exclusional radical feminist um so that's it, it it's an interesting one to reference but I, I think another example that popped into my mind of the way that this went the opposite way um was the new york times when they ousted barry weiss who you had employees who were clearly acting in a way that any responsible institution and employer should discipline those employees for the way they were going after barry weiss but instead it was barry who was pushed out and you have Barry has a, actually a very good piece in commentary entitled, We Got Here Because of Cowardice, We Get Out with Courage. In the piece, she writes, how did we get here? There are a lot of factors that are relevant to the answer, institutional decay, the tech revolution and the monopolies it created, the arrogance of our elites, poverty, the death of trust. And all of these must be examined because without them, we would have neither the far right nor the cultural revolutionaries now clamoring at America's gates. But there is one word we should linger on because every moment of radical victory turned on it. The word is cowardice. The revolution has been met with almost no resistance by those who have the title CEO or leader or president or principal in front of their names. The refusal of the adults in the room to speak the truth, their refusal to say no to efforts to undermine the mission of their institutions, their fear of being called a bad name, and that fear trumping their responsibility. That is how we got here. So – when Sam was speaking earlier about how <clears throat> he thinks part of this might be just the sentiment is growing is generally turning against this, I'm not so sure. And one of the things that I thought of with Netflix is Netflix has historically defended comedians against the public. Uh, Amy Schumer uh, famously had a comedy special that got basically terrible reviews from fans within the system, like within the rating system itself. To the point that they fundamentally restructured that rating system in order for that criticism not to be visible. And I think there's a, there's a widespread understanding for good or for ill that contemporary comedy and propriety do not go together, that this is something fundamentally different. And one of the things that Netflix is in is in, is in the comedy dispensing business in sponsoring these sort of stand-up specials. Now, the case of Barry Weiss is something different. This is not the New York Times uh, newsroom, uh, despite you know often hilarious circumstances, is not in the business of comedy itself. So I think that the, 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 there's a fundamental difference there. And part of it is what we're negotiating right now about what is – what is propriety? We're undergoing a cultural shift. Certain things, you know, certain activists are, you know, pursuing an agenda to sort of radically limit what goes under uh, proprietist speech. And uh, others are pushing against that. And, and that's being negotiated all the time, you know, and often with disastrous consequences. You mentioned the Amy Schumer 
uh, special and that how it had been rather poorly received and they stood up and defended it still. I, I think just for point of comparison here, um, Dave Chappelle's The Closer special uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics rating is 43%. The audience score is 95%. And you can compare that to the, um, I will use air quotes, scare quotes here, comedian Hannah Gadsby, whose whole routine in this special that, again, I believe aired on Netflix as well, Nanette, is not comedy. It's like it's post-comedy. It's just trying to make the audience uncomfortable and live in the same kind of pain that she says that she has been made to live in because of her situations in life. That is a 100% rating from the critics, 26% from the audience score. So the audience is actually speaking pretty clearly here. Something else that struck me about the special from Dave Chappelle is – what, again, is supposed to be the issue of controversy that we're all supposed to be animated about? And it's his basic just agreement with J.K. Rowling about some of the excesses of the trans rights movement while he makes very clear at the end of being accepting of individual people uh, that the movement itself is what's gone too far. He does make a couple of jokes in the special about uh, a movie idea he has called Space Jews in which like the first part of it is um, it's about a people that leave Earth to go somewhere else, decide that they don't want to be there and then come back and want to take their land again. And he calls that space juice. And it's like, eh, I don't think it's all that particularly funny. But nobody seems to be outraged about the fact that he made a joke about space Jews. That's because Mel Brooks made it first. Right. At the end of History of the World Part One. Jews in space, much better version of the same thing. But I mean, Sam, does this this just underscore that within this time, religion as it has always been in comedic circles is entirely fair game, even when it is, in this case – not funny. And, you know, again, I don't want people jumping. I don't think people should be jumping all over Dave Chappelle for those jokes. But if we're going to take offense at jokes, then that one seems to be equally game for it. And yet no one brings that up. I think part of the issue here is that many people are looking for consistency in the way that these things are talked about, dealt with, the way in which these things are discussed, etc. And frankly, there is no consistency, I think. Uh, so much of this, I think, is depends on cause celebs, what's fashionable among the chattering classes. And even with something like religion, um, think about when you think about religion, well, I can tell you that you dare not say anything about Islam, uh, but... So you can say anything you want about Roman Catholicism and you can get away with it, right? So I think that much of this is if we're looking for consistency, if we're looking for a way of trying to understand this as based upon a type of principled position or whatever it is, I I just don't see it. I think so much of this is just driven by particular uh, trends at a particular moment in time, which could shift next week. Who knows? Maybe next week making uh, uh, jokes about Jews that verge on anti-Semitism will become fashionable in some circles. I don't know. So, But it it does seem to me that trying to find a type of rigorous intellectual framework driving these sorts of things is, is looking for something that doesn't exist. It's just constantly changing in ways that are often quite hard to predict, which makes it very difficult to navigate, right? Because if you're a comedian, <laughs> uh, you you have to think, okay, what's going to what's going to upset people next week or this week, or what's going to be the thing that's on people's minds in uh, two years' time when my show is likely to be on the line or whatever it happens to be. I think this is also why you see uh, the state of comedy. You have the people that you can point to, like Dave Chappelle, who are willing to do and say things and do routines based on things that have a point, but that are actually clearly funny. And one of the great things about comedy and laughter is how involuntary a reaction it is. We laugh at the things that we laugh at. 
as opposed to, say, the entire lineup of the late night shows on the basic broadcast stations, Colbert and Seth Meyers, um, that entire crew that aren't doing comedy anymore. Right. They're doing uh, the, the, the well, they're, they're doing politics. But the term that's been given to it is clapter, that the reaction they're going for from audiences is not laughter. It is people applauding. The things that they're saying, which is just not the same thing as comedy. And go back to the point about the Rotten Tomatoes scores. I think it is, again, really telling what people are actually reacting to favorably, which is the thing that they're being told they should be offended by. And the thing that they're supposed to regard as incredibly insightful and important in Hannah Gatsby's routine is almost entirely rejected. So maybe this is a way we can think about the lack of ideological consistency is part of what is going on with this sort of clapter phenomena is that there is a desire by certain groups first and foremost to be affirmed in a way that, let's say, historically religious groups have not. I mean, Jesus tells us that I am sending you out like sheep among the wolves, therefore be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. This is not the sort of ethic that these modern sort of woke activist movements are about. They are about be as loud as possible, be as in your face as possible, because through that berating, we want affirmation. And that if there's resistance to that affirmation, then there's not, you know, that's, that's fundamentally the key. The key is that affirmation. It's not anything beyond that. It's not taking part in a greater divine plan. Um, there's a uh, there's a strange captivity to the world at the same time as feeling out of place to the world in which in which religious minorities don't have that strange juxtaposition. There's another good point in Barry Weiss's piece where she is explaining the ideology of wokeness. In there, she says, in this ideology, speech is violence, but violence when carried out by the right people in pursuit of a just cause is not violence at all. In this ideology, bullying is wrong unless you are bullying the right people, in which case it's, a, it's very, very good. In this ideology, education is not about teaching people how to think. It's about re-educating them and what to think. In this ideology, the need to feel safe trumps the need to speak truthfully. And I think that first part about the speech being violence thing uh, sticks out to me when we look at the other case of quote unquote cancel culture that we saw in the last week. Again, standard caveats about my issues and I assume others issues with the term cancel culture that's very nebulous and we can read into it kind of what we want. But it nonetheless, in a John McWhorter linguistics way, points to a phenomenon we can all identify. And that was the resignation of Las Vegas Raiders coach John Gruden over emails that he had sent years ago, uh, which I think raises one question about all of this, that, you know, how how long ago can something have occurred to not have to immediately impact you in the present day, or at least beyond saying, you know, necessitating an apology, which I think when you read through what was reported of John Gruden's comments probably merited an apology. But it sticks out to me because in the NFL, you have John Gruden being held accountable in this way. You have all of this and all of this is pursuant to the investigation that the NFL is doing surrounding now the Washington football team, formerly the Redskins, again, about words and language, where you have plenty of incidents of real violence that has happened involving players in the National Football League. Ray Rice famously getting a two-game suspension for punching his girlfriend, which was caught on video. And John Gruden is forced out over distasteful and awful remarks, but that were made many years ago. So the standard seems to be bizarre in the way that we prize the supposed violence of words now over actual violence. I think that's true. However, there's also the, the question of sort of expectations. Usually. <clears throat> that suspension for Ray Rice was nothing out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, when mediocre football coaches embarrass their teams, which is what John Gruden is. And, and what he did. And someone who will embarrass them again. Again, John Gruden is, 
is not a, a proprietorist man. <laughs> uh, has never been, has never had that reputation. So part of it is, you know, we were talking again earlier about the lack of consistency. There seems to be like a strange consistency here with talent gets a pass mm-hmm. and mediocrity doesn't. There's there's no uh, – if if it were Bill Belichick of the Patriots who has been so incredibly successful in his career, I think you're probably right that you don't have this forced resignation. There's an apology which he will deliver in his particular dry and dismissive way and everybody will move on from it. But Sam, what I, I – I think something else that's interesting about this to me is the kind of comments that John Gruden made where he used the uh, the other F word, um, the one, a derogatory slur for a uh, homosexual. If you were to dig deep into sports locker room culture, as we were so informed about during the 2016 presidential campaign and locker room talk, is that there is you would find a lot of it. Let's just be honest. You would find a lot of that language and you find a lot of coarseness accepted in modern life now that this these things are just kind of a part of the fabric of it. And we seem to, I say in the royal we sense here, some people seem to get really offended only when it seems to serve some kind of a purpose, as I think it did here with John Gruden, rather than if they actually were to dig down into these supposedly woke sports leagues. And you see all the, you know, the stuff that the NBA has done with Black Lives Matter on the court and all of that. Uh, if you were to get into those locker rooms, I'm sure you would hear a lot of things that would offend the delicate sensibilities of the people who are causing such a ruckus about this stuff now. Right. And of course, there's two two things I'd observe here. One is, to the extent that the whole woke phenomena is a type of pseudo-religion, it demonstrates the importance of, ironically enough, of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness and redemption, because woke... Wokeness, woke religion, whatever we're calling this phenomena, has no place for that at all. Um, uh, Certainly Judaism and Christianity have a very strong appreciation of the reality of sin, but also a strong emphasis upon forgiveness. You have to ask for it, of course. It's not just given out because because, um, you're somehow owed it. You have to ask for it. But once you've asked for forgiveness and once justice has been done, then life moves on. And if we're going to go back and litigate the sins, real and uh, imagined, of people in the past, well, where do we stop? Where do we stop? I mean, we're going to let's go back and look, Eric, at your emails from 1999, or I don't know, Dan, when you're studying at Hillsdale, things that you might have said at in a in the privacy of a lecture hall or whatever it is when you are discussing whatever particular matter, or myself. I mean, there's no end to this type of stuff. So that's that's one thing. The second thing I think you're pointing to, Eric, is the selectivity of much of this phenomena. So we have, for example, you mentioned the NBA and all their stuff about Black Lives Matters and all that. Fine. I haven't heard people from the NBA talking about Uyghur Muslims in China. No, to, to the extent that China has been invoked by uh, Rockets GM Daryl Morley, it was immediately rebuked right. by the NBA for him stepping out of line. Again, coming back to my question earlier about right. Netflix and their financial interest, the financial interest that the NBA had in China was so large that you couldn't even have Daryl Morley making a simple comment in support of the people of Hong Kong. Right. And so what this means, of course, is that uh, if, if when commercial motivations are driving things, I mean, that h- provides an explanation for why a lot of organizations are behaving in particular ways regarding different subjects. It looks contradictory, but when you dig down and you realize the commercial motivation that's driving it, then the cons- a type of consistency emerges. The problem, of course, for businesses that play this game is that after a while, people work out, okay, well, you really actually don't have a deep moral concern for whatever the issue happens to be. This is primarily about economic self-interest. Why don't you just say that instead of parading yourselves as these arbiters of what is moral and what is not? So it points back, I think, to a a problem when, when businesses and corporations play this game. 
they open themselves up to these charges of, well, really, you don't actually take morality that seriously at all. So maybe you should just shut up about these issues altogether. If you're going to, if you're going to reflect upon these issues at all, then you need to be, have some sort of inner moral consistency. So if you're going to talk about Black Lives Matters, then you should be talking about the oppression of, I don't know, women in Iran or the, the, the genocide that's being conducted by the communist regime against Uyghur Muslims, or any number of different things, right? But if you, go, if you go to single things out, you start looking a little bit hypocritical. So probably you're better off saying nothing at all and just do what your commercial interests suggest to you. Instead of trying to put it in terms of this big moral package and how you're being so socially responsible. I find myself wondering often how in an age of digital communications, when we're just going to declare kind of a detente on this stuff um, so that you in, if you go back to an age where most of our conversations were held in person or they were written on a piece of paper. And then, of course, paper can be destroyed in a way that something digital is there forever. I'm, I'm reminded of the. Uh, uh, I can't remember who it was who told me this, but it's like, you know, dance like nobody is looking, sing like nobody is listening, and email as if it will someday be read aloud in a deposition. Um, <laughs> as a just general reminder to be careful with your words because digital is forever. And I'm sure, especially when you've got a generation now, the 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 Zoomer generation that is what's different about them from, you know, I'm an older millennial. I still re can remember growing up without the internet. I know the internet. I'm of that culture, but I can remember a time when it wasn't around as opposed to younger people who have always been communicating on it. And the records of those communications will never fully go away. And I just have to think at some point, we have to declare some kind of a detente, some kind of a, we got to call this thing off because you can go spelunking through everybody's digital records and undoubtedly find something that they would be embarrassed by because sure. we are fallen creatures and we have said and done things that we are not proud of. And I don't think that it is valuable to this society to be perpetually judging people by the digital records of their worst possible moments. But it seems like that is what we are currently committed to. And I just don't know when that'll end. Right. And remember, think about the number of teenagers out there who are struggling with different things in their lives, who are angry about different things, who are uncertain about different things, and who are also going through uh, an enormous and consequential physical and mental shift in everything that, that is about them as a person and the things that they write down on or they email to their friends or they text or they put up on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it happens to be, are we going to hold them responsible for some of those things when they're 30 years old or 35 years old or 40 years old? Are future presidential candidates going to be called out for something they said when they were 14 years old on Instagram. I mean, this is, I mean, this, is, I think you're right. At some point we need to say, look, after at a certain point, we just have to accept that people do and say dumb things at particular points of their lives. And, you know, if they acknowledge it was dumb and stupid, fine. But constantly going back and raking people over the coals for things that everyone has done at some point of their lives because we're weak, fallible creatures, we're fallen, we're sinful, if if you don't put some sort of moratorium in place or or don't acknowledge that we make mistakes and we ask for forgiveness, if you don't acknowledge that, then there is no logical point in which this stuff can be stopped. I think a lot of this renegotiation that's going on right now in terms of propriety is, is exactly fueled by this phenomena of this digital phenomena. Because one of the things, there, there are both the mistakes that we make and there's also the fact that communication is highly contextual and that in the digital world, anything can be ripped out of that original communicative context and put anywhere. Um, you know, we're told by St. Paul to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how you – so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We're no longer answering each person when we speak. We're, a, we're answering a hypothetical multitude, um, both present and future. And you're going to need different communication norms and different standards of, of propriety and different standards of reconciliation for 
when offense is is given and taken. That's a very good observation. I think we see it in a much more low-grade way. With I remember being told at one point that uh, by someone that I'm a mean emailer. And I, I struggled to understand what they meant by that, which is I don't think I'm cruel in communications. And I finally, after talking to them, realized what they meant was I'm usually short and direct in emails. And because there's no you know salutation and no flowery language or anything like that, their interpretation was that I was angry or mad or being mean about something. I think we also see this in – I'm sure we've all had text communications where the problem, of course, with written communication like that – if someone's being sarcastic, the text is the same as if they're being serious. And in, in the online world, you have the extreme version of this in, in what's called Poe's Law, that it is impossible to tell uh, satire from sincerely held fanaticism without a clear indication of the speaker or author's intent. But I think we've all experienced this in some way, that we it's so easy to be misunderstood in that digital realm when you're only reading things and you're not reading the kind of social emotional cues that you normally get from face-to-face conversation and that even is better handled over like a Zoom call, but still not perfect and still not the same sense of intimacy that we can have with each other when we're talking in person. We should understand this at a very base level because I feel like everybody has to have experienced something like that. And in the worst possible cases in what we're talking about now, it's taken to an extreme um, and things are, as you said, ripped out of their context. And even some things that I think in the case of John Gruden here were bad in their original context and for which he should apologize. But again, the question becomes for how long and in what ways do we want to hold people accountable for past mistakes like that? Yes, I think that, I think what you're saying there, Eric, is is right. And we also need to think about this this contextual issue because if you read a book and you see a statement, a sentence, you you it's very difficult if you're an honest person to take that out of context because it's by definition surrounded by context. Uh, so if you do take it out of context, you know what you're doing. The problem, of course, with so much social media and things like email and text, and I mean, you say you're a mean texter. I think I'm a very polite texter. But I know exactly what you're talking about, right? Because I've received texts from people and I've thought, wow, what's wrong with them? And actually, it's got nothing to do with them having a problem. It's just that they're in a cab somewhere and they're getting out of the car and they're just getting out of the door and they're basically texting as they're doing that. And they don't have time to write a long, lengthy email that that gently introduces the subject and warms you up to it or anything like that. So, I mean, this is part, I think, of what Dan's, Dan's, I think, like Dan's phrase, renegotiation of these things. It's not just about, it's partly about the the medium, right? So it's about the mediums, the different mediums by which we have to communicate these types of ideas and even just everyday conversation. That's all very, very important. But also I think there's a uh, something else Dan talked about, the, 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 let's call it the sort of broad religion, I mean religion in this very general sense of the word, the religious sense in which all these things, the culture in which this is all occurring, where um, you have a very type of vindictive religious culture out there right now that is making um, politics, politics, discussions about philosophy, even discussions about economics, for example, extremely toxic right now. So, I mean, economics is a good... So economics, for example, there's lots of room for disagreement, right? I mean, most good economists will say, look, there are basic principles, but there's lots of room for disagreement about any number of different policy positions. But when you're living in an atmosphere where somehow, you know, if you adopt a particular position on an issue, well, you are clearly a market fundamentalist. Right, so the language, even the language of fundamentalism that comes into play there, I mean, that's it. It tells you something about how people are treating these issues, and they're putting these issues in the categories of deep conflicts about the ultimate transcendental realities, even metaphysical questions, and you're either on one side or you're not, and there's no room for discussion about these sorts of issues, and that I think is poisoning so much of public discussion and public debate and our ability to even have civilized conversations in which people can freely 
and politely disagree with each other. So much of it boils down to the uh, Judge Smales from Caddyshack uh, characterization. Are you on the side of goodness or badness? But Sam, speaking of economics, let's turn our attention to our second topic, which is the supply chain. And gentlemen, we seem to be dealing with some disruptions to our supply chain. And some of this seems to be expected in that we took very drastic and dramatic actions in 2020 to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of the problems that we've talked about in the past, uh, such as shortages of products that there were runs on, Like uh, it was a while before I was able to find like Clorox wipes. Uh, It was a run Mm -hmm. on toilet paper and paper towels and a lot of those things. But we are seeing, I think it's something of a different nature now. And I think it has to do with more systemic issues within the supply chain that are starting as far out as our ports where things are backing up. Um, Someone who told me that at uh, Long Beach, California, if you look out, it looks like there's a large retaining wall and that is just ships sitting out there waiting to bring things in. Of course, the America's ports are some of the slowest in the world, in part because they're dominated by the Longshoremen Union, who can control things and have resisted automation at every possible turn. But we're seeing this further and further down the supply chain to the point where there are certain things when you go to the grocery store now that you're not finding there. And, you know, we're seeing higher energy costs. We're seeing problems in employment. I don't just want to say unemployment because there's actually a glut of jobs and there don't seem to be enough takers for them. Um, We're seeing supply chain issues, energy problems. Sam, are we on a collision course for some kind of repeat of the 1970s where similar problems Uh, We're on the horizon and we're dealt with very poorly in a political sense, leading to drastic changes in the years that followed it. You know, when you say all that, it did remind me of the 1970s. Now, I was a child at the time, but even I as a child (laughs) knew that there was inflation was a big deal (laughs) in the 1970s. Uh, So let's unpack some of this. Uh, Obviously, some of this owes Uh, a great deal to the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, specifically government attempts to deal with this. So we all know that. But there are systematic systemic problems that have also been uh, uncovered, if you like. Uh, You mentioned one with the ports. They are dominated by uh, a particular union. Now, that actually happens to be the case in a lot of countries, even in countries where union membership is actually quite low, there tends to be a very large concentration of union membership in, um, in among employees or people who are working in places like ports, right? Because it's, it's, just, it's like a strategic bottleneck. If you can control that, then you can tell governments that, well, if you don't do this, then we're going to slow things down, which is going to slow down uh, the supply of goods and services, across supply chains, which now, of course, are incredibly globalized, right, in a way that's often, I think, we have to, you have to go back to the 19th century to get a sense of just how globalized things are now and how different that is compared to the period between 1914 and, I guess, 1980. So that's, that's one thing, I think, that's going on. The other thing which I think is also interesting is that it's very clear that many of these problems – stem from particular forms of government intervention in the economy, often well-intentioned interventions. But as we all know, these things tend to have very negative uh, side effects in different ways, often unattended. Sometimes they're known, sometimes they're unknown. But I think that this is part of the problem. So, I mean, you mentioned the, the glut of jobs, right? Well, it's very clear that there are a lot of people who are choosing not to take up jobs because they're still getting some type of employment assistance from some level of government. And they're working out, well, they're doing the sums, right? Why should I work? I get this amount from the government. Maybe it's slightly less than that I would get by working, but I have all this free time now. So the trade-off is work it, working. So it's interesting that in those states where at least state governments have either refused to accept any more or disperse any more federal government spending or for this sort of thing, or they've basically just said, no, we're not going to do this anymore and reduce their own subsidies that they were giving to people in their state, 
the employment market in those states has tended to snap back uh, much more quickly. It's in those states where these these benefits are flowing through still that you do have these types of shortages. So, I, you know, we're a free market institution. We take free markets very seriously. But I think it's, this is, it's very clear that this is very much part of the problem. And withdrawing those interventions is going to be a little bit painful at first for some people, but I think that is part of the key to unlocking some of these particular problems. Because if we're still giving money to people to effectively, instead of encouraging them to go out and actually work, I think we're going to still have these types of problems in the employment market for the foreseeable future. I think Sam is right that there is a big connection to this employment issue because once you get beyond the longshoremen and the union-guarded ports, you get to other places where the labor shortage is, I think, at minimum exacerbating this crisis, these supply chain problems, because you need truck drivers to move uh, the materials from the ports to warehouses. You need people at the warehouses to unload them. You need people at those warehouses to load them onto other trucks that distribute them to places within the area. You need stockers at grocery stores who are there to unload all of it. And everywhere I go, and I'm always wary of the anecdotal stories like this, but everywhere I go, and I've been traveling a lot in the last two months, you see places that are just begging people to take jobs. And you have to think that that has a good amount to do with – it may not be the fundamental cause of the supply chain problems. I think a lot of that is owed to the measures that we took during the coronavirus pandemic or at least the beginning of it. But it is certainly making it worse. And the government interventions that are uh, that they have made, particularly in unemployment, have – I think made it even worse and are keeping it that way. And there's there's also a sense in which, you know, the economy is real. These are real people with real jobs doing things in the world. And it's not an abstract thing that you can just turn off and turn on. Mm-hmm. When everything was turned off, people changed. People retired early because they didn't know if and when they would be able to get back to work. Parents left the workforce to tend to children who were out of school. You have industries, particularly I have a lot of friends and family in the service industry that was shut down for longer than a lot of other things. A lot of those people made career transitions. They're now working in insurance offices. They're now caring for children. They've now changed careers, gone back to school, and as a result, you know, there is it's it's very acute in the service industry, you know, to the point where, you know, I've got a McDonald's up the street that's closing at 5 p.m. on Saturday. And this is happening because, you know, we might have wanted the government policymakers may have wanted people to stand still through the early part of the pandemic, but people have needs and people have families and they have economic realities and they will make those adjustments and you can't just call them back to wherever they were before. Can I add a quick point to that? I, I think that's that's all true. And the other thing that I would inject into that is that I, I'm struck by, for example, I'm sure you've both seen this, the number of people who are leaving their jobs, who have just said, you know, in a way that that they probably wouldn't have done so quickly prior to the pandemic, right? There are lots of people that are constant. They're uh, saying, well, I want things to be more on my own terms now, right? So if you're not going to let me work from home, I'll go work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. There's a, lots of companies out there that will let me do that. And they'll probably even pay, they may pay me a little less, but I'll be still working from home with all the different benefits that Dan just just mentioned. Great They're receiving compensation in a different way in terms right, of flexibility. Right, right. Yes. Exactly, exactly. So I don't think there's any quick going back to a pre-2020 American economy. The other thing, of course, is that we're discovering that when you have a free price system, which we still more or less have in the United States, more or less, and the Federal Reserve is doing its best to disrupt that right now, but we still have a free price system, so we will see these things reflected in this market signaling function of prices. 
So the price for labor, labor does have a price that comes along with it. There's a market price for labor. This is being affected by these sorts of things. So uh, I, I think that people are making lots of different decisions. They were put in a position in many cases where they had to say, okay, well, what's really important to me? Is it going to the office and doing this or whatever it happens to be? Or have I discovered that I'd rather spend more time with my family and I'm, more, I'm prepared to take a financial uh, cut for that? So that's, it's, in, it's going to be interesting to see how long these trends persist, particularly if, we, as, as we all hope, the, the economy eventually starts to turn around. I'm not sure that's going to happen soon, but one hopes that that will happen. But it's not clear to me that some of these, some, some of these changes in, let's call it the economic culture of our country, are going to be disappearing very anytime soon. The point they're saying about spending more time with family is a perfect segue into our final topic, but not before I leave you with a quote from uh, the great F.A. Hayek, although not quite F.A. Hayek. It is the Hayek in the uh, great Keynes Hayek rap video, uh, Fight of the Century. Just a great quote. The economy's not a car. There's no engine to stall. No expert can fix it. There's no it at all. The economy's us. We don't need a mechanic. Put away the wrenches. The economy's organic. Some great words to leave you with there. Let's go to our final topic, um, spending more time with your family. So the Secretary of Transportation, who you would assume would have some role within problems having to do with the supply chain and the transportation elements of the supply chain, we learned in the last few days, has been out on paternity leave. And I, I want to set one part of this aside which is to say, and this is an ideological point on my part, and anybody's welcome to attack it if they wish, uh, I don't think having the Secretary of Transportation there in the office 24-7 would make all that much of a difference in the supply chain issues that we're having. And the people who are making that argument are, one, I think, interestingly, the kind of people who normally would agree with me on that statement, but because it's politically advantageous to use this as a cudgel to bash uh, a part of a Democrat administration in the White House right now, they're willing to do that. But I really don't think it would make all that much difference if Pete Buttigieg were spending every moment of his time trying to fix this. And in fact, it might even make it worse. But set all of that aside for a moment here. And I thought something interesting stuck out to me, that there were seemingly two elements of the political right, of the, of the right, reacting to this in completely different ways, where you had the national conservative or integralist crowd very much in favor of an idea of parental leave. It's good for parents, not only mothers, but fathers to spend time with their children. We had a lot of talk about, like, what should policy like that be? Uh, and then you had a reaction from another part of the right and characterized primarily by the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh, who was saying, like, dads are irrelevant at this point in time. And essentially, you're a weakling if you're a dad who wants to take paternity leave and you shouldn't want to do that. So I just throw the open question out there. Um, how should we think about paternity leave as a policy most places offer maternity leave that, like this is you know not not every place offers the same kind of thing and there are arguments over how we should standardize it if we should standardize it but not everywhere offers paternity leave how should we think about this in terms of what is desirable and then how to achieve what you may find to be desirable well if i can go first um i think your point about uh whether having the Secretary of Transportation in the office would actually make any difference, I think is a very telling one because there's no evidence that he actually has any qualifications to deal with this issue or to talk about this issue. I mean, he's a, po a political appointee uh, for political reasons. Um, it's not as if he's been appointed because he has some sort of great knowledge of this particular area. So that's not new. The other side do it as well, right? So if, this, is a, this, is, this is standard American politics. Um, so that that's just normal. But it does – another thing that I'd add is that when you assume public office, I mean a major public office like um, uh, a secretary of state position, secretary of state for commerce or whatever it happens to be, you are taking on some significant responsibilities for some aspect of the political order and that's not the same as – it's not the same magnitude of responsibility 
for someone who's, let's say, running a small business or someone who's working in a think tank, it's, it just involves a lot more work and responsibility. So there's a reasonable expectation that such a person is going to be, I wouldn't say working 24-7, but they will be working very hard for what is usually a relatively short period of time, right? Most people don't stay in these positions more than, what, two, three, four years. It's very rare for someone to be, say, Secretary of the Treasury for eight years. That that has those – most people, it's mo at most usually about four years, right? But there is this expectation that you've taken on this public office and therefore you're going to behave in a way that's a little different from someone who's working a nine-to-five job. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'll say is that we're living in a different world now whereby fathers are not it's, – it's, it's a different world from, say, the 1950s, right? So where the father takes care, he's the one that goes out and earns the income and has the job and the wife stays at home and looks after the children. Now, that model of, of let's call it a division of labor exists still in large parts of the United States and around the world, but – it would be hard to say that that is the absolute norm because it's clearly not. Most women at some point are working for longer periods of time in the workforce than they did before. But also I think there's a social expectation now on fathers that you should be actually much more involved in the raising of your children. There are a lot of people of, of my age who will tell you that when they were growing up, they never saw their father. The father was at work all day. And I can tell you it's led to a lot of dysfunctionality with uh, relations between children and their, and their parents, particularly their fathers, because their fathers were largely absent. They were building a business, having a career, bringing in income, all of which is good and important, but it's not a substitute for direct parental in in influence and activity in a child's life. Now, expectations have changed in that regard, and I think that's actually healthy, very healthy, for fathers to be much more involved in the lives of their children, uh, in the raising of their children, the emotional and intellectual and social, cultural and religious formation of their children than, than maybe hitherto happened. So I think that's a good thing. But that does then present challenges, right, about these things called how much time should businesses allow for spouses to take time out to be with and, and help their children at particularly important points of their time. I, I, I don't think there's a sort of one-size-fits-all solution to these problems. Unfortunately, when it comes to regulation and law, regulation and law tends to look, right, for one-size-fits-all solutions to these types of problems. My own view, I think, is that it's much better if you give businesses and, and companies the flexibility that they need to work out how to do these sorts of things. Because in my experience, I think most businesses are are willing to try and work something out. What's hard is when they get locked into certain positions because of state state or federal regulations when it comes to these things, but in many respects, tie their hands so that, okay, we'll give you two months. We have to give you two months paternity leave. But after that, you better be back here uh, working enormous amounts of hours every day, and the fact that you're not, not seeing your children is frankly irrelevant to us. So again, the sort of one-size-fits-all approach, I think, can often lead to highly dysfunctional outcomes in this area. My frustration with those two segments of the right that I articulated earlier, um, not to psychoanalyze people that I don't really know, but to Sam's point about problems with uh, father-son relationships, some of those comments, like what I saw from Matt Walsh, from a, the first thought in my head was someone clearly needed to be hugged by his father more as a kid. The other problem, I think, from the more we can come up with a one-size-fits-all policy that drives people in a direction that we think would be more beneficial by having dads spend more time with their kids that you find from the national conservatives and the integralists, I think is problematic to me for a lot of the unintended consequence issues that, I, that Sam raised, but also the idea that they know uh, assumed in that is that they know the best possible arrangement for every given family and all of those individual family units that perhaps uh, you know they will they'll deal with it in a different way they will take um, people will move jobs as Sam pointed out earlier to take a job with more flexibility that will allow them both to work and have that flexible time to spend with their kids and it 
it totally blows the ability of individuals to figure out what is best for them out of the water. It blows it away entirely in favor of people who believe they know all about exactly how people's lives should be lived. And that drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, family-like speech is, is, is contextual and so are your childcare needs. Um, some people have large extended families that are able to offer help and support. Some folks are in a context where they've got uh, churches. And what strikes me as interesting about all of the policies, the, they, they ignore it, but it's not simply ignoring. It's also, let's say you do a policy of, let's say, mandatory paid family leave for, let's say, uh, you know, both spouses. That benefits a particular sort of arrangement. And that particular sort of arrangement is you have two parents who work and that particular arrangement is subsidized by this regulation in a way that, let's say, one parent working and one parent staying home wouldn't be to the same extent. In the way those extended family networks, you end up, whenever you, whenever you try to to pigeon in this one one size fits all solution, you end up incentivizing people to opt for that arrangement, regardless of what might be best for the child or for the family in general. It just it it adds a weight to a particular style of parenting and a particular way of doing things uh, with family. Let's close out the show today with a new segment, which will be recommended reading, which is just something we found over the course of the last week that we want to draw your attention to. And I will go first here and we'll include links to all of these in the show notes. Uh, My piece is uh, what I've mentioned a couple and quoted from a couple times earlier in this episode, Barry Weiss's piece in the new issue of Commentary. We got here because of cowardice. We get out with courage. Commentary has a whole special issue on the ideology of wokeness and a number of great pieces in there, including one from David Zucker, the creator of the airplane movies about what wokeness is doing to comedy, highly relevant to what we talked about in the show. But Barry's piece is particularly excellent excellent as she walks through the nature of this ideology and her argument for how we got there, which was a fear of regular people to actually say what they believe to be true and too often cowed into being silent or saying things that are untrue and that courage is the way that we get out of it. Courage to just say the things that we know are true and let the chips fall with them where they may. I highly recommend Barry Weiss's new piece and commentary. Sam? Well, my recommendation this week is a uh, interview of Philip Hamburger, who's probably the most prominent and I think uh, – best uh, professor of administrative law in the United States. And it's an interview that was done by uh, a friend of the Acton Institute, Richard Reich, who's the editor of Law and Liberty. And it's an interview in which he discusses the way, it's called Abusing the Power of the Purse. And it's, it, it, plies, it plays into some of the things we've been talking about today. It talks about how um, leaving aside division of power, leaving aside the fact that uh, technically, Congress has the power of the purse, right? That's 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 how the division of labor and government is supposed to go. The way in which the administrative state and its capacity to shape how and what is spent in different areas is a, a way in which the federal government has expanded its powers far beyond anything that was envisaged uh, by certainly the founders but lots and lots of, of theorists of constitutional law for a very, very long period of time. So he, he points out that it's not just a question of the fact that the administrative state has gathered certain powers. It's also the fact that by its use of the power of the purse, it's way the ways in which it shapes our lives and the lives of institutions and businesses and civil associations in ways that are, that are often undetectable but nonetheless raised some, raised some very big questions about the scope for liberty and personal responsibility among Americans today. So I'll say it again. It's called Abusing the Power of the Purse. It's an interview by Richard Reich uh, of Philip Hamburger, Professor Philip Hamburger, and it's at Lauren Liberty.
Dan? My recommendation is a book that actually will be coming to North America soon. Um, it is uh, by Vinay Siddhapati entitled Jugal Bundy, uh, the BJP before Modi. This is the, the Indian edition that I read, but uh, it will be coming to, uh, to America soon uh, by Penguin under a slightly different title. And it's a history of sort of Hindu nationalism in India for the last hundred years, told primarily through two of its most sort of influential formative figures, former Prime Minister Vajpayee and uh, his close uh, associate uh, L.K. Advani. What it's interesting in terms of our conversation, how it relates, is this is a renegotiation of both ethnic identity in India in the wake of colonialism and political identity in, in India from a sort of Congress-dominated Nehruvian consensus, including a planned economy and uh, a sort of uh, uh, – secular state to a different sort of more Hindu-tinged, albeit still officially secular state, and more openness to the market economy and sort of the dynamics of, of how, you know, a situation where we have now where the BJP very much dominates the Indian landscape from one in which, you know, this sort of movement was in totally obscure 100 years ago. It's a fascinating chronicle. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, we appreciate that. But we ask you to please take a look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind. Or you can just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thank you to Sam. Thank you to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.